Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello. Ever since this horror began, um, I've been trying to use this space as best I can uh, to elevate voices we need to hear. And that is, of course, must involve Palestinians, and it, it has to involve courageous Israeli peace activists who I'm constantly in awe of. Um, it's not easy at the moment to be fighting for peace and for justice um, in Israeli society, but there is a very inspiring tradition, which I keep going on about. The left as we exist would not exist without the great humanist tradition which is so interwoven with the Jewish tradition, and that has shaped the left since its foundation, really. So with that in mind, it's a huge honor to be joined by Dana Mills, who is the uh, biographer of Rosa Luxemburg, someone I'm uh, a big admirer of. My twin sister named her cat after her. Uh, she's also a dance writer um, and uh, also a fighter for social justice. We've got two big things in common, I would say. Yeah. Um, half Welsh. Are you yeah, half Welsh? I am half Welsh indeed, yeah. My dad is born and raised in Cardiff, so yeah. You're more Welsh than me. There is, I'm afraid, a division now opening up, which we're going to have to get over, which is uh, my dad's family from North Wales, the Clin Peninsula. Okay. So we're off to a terrible start, the North-South Welsh. That's it. That's, we're done now. <laughs> um, the other is a love of cats, both... Um, Every exchange we've had is I, sh I I didn't say I didn't, didn't keep my side of the bargain. I should have sent pictures of my cats, but I'm, I'm unfortunately I'm in Paris at the moment. So I'm not with my cats, so I'm a bit cat sick. Aww. But you've helped by sending me pictures of your cats, so I'm less yes. cat sick than I was. Let's just start by talking about you, if that's all right, mm. uh, because I mentioned you're half Welsh. So just yeah. tell me about because you're half Welsh and you're half Israeli. So just tell oh, me yeah. about your, I guess your background and, and I guess you know because I want to talk about the Israeli peace movement and. Mm. You know, the current context and that history but just often you know the person is political obviously so just tell me about your history okay so first of all thank you so much for having me and um, the honor is entire mine um so i was actually born in britain but my parents went here when i was just over a year old so i was raised here and um when i was in high school um that was the was the era of the oslo accords and um kind of a big shift in this course around the occupation, Palestine. Um, I was 13 when Rabin was murdered. Rabin was the prime minister then, and the man who tried to, to push then for peace. And I just remember it as a very kind of traumatic moment. And um, I didn't, I wasn't that clued in in politics. I, I was a young teenager, but I was remember just being shocked at the moment. And I had a friend who had been going to um, Peace Now Youth meetings, which were kind of dialogues between Palestinian and Israeli youth. And I decided to join along just because I was, I kind of felt I needed to do something. And whereas me today looks back at the Oslo paradigm, and uh, I hope we can get to that data because I think it's important. And I realized that a lot of the things that we were rooting then for then do not hold or did not even hold then. And um, there was a moment of hope and transition in the air. So uh, I spent most of my high school years in kind of activism around the occupation protesting 
illegal outposts, um, meeting with Palestinian youth. And I remember um, we didn't have the language of apartheid yet. And I mean, even now, some people would say it is controversial, but I remember just being very struck by the everyday experience of going to meet youth of my age and me sort of traveling very easily to meet them and them being held in checkpoints and being always late and always sort of talking about harassment of the army and the army being, you know, my, my friends and, and relatives and then later myself. So it was kind of very clear to me that the relationship was very complex and it wasn't just we can sit in a room and we can talk about our differences and then peace will come to the Middle East, which was kind of the hope behind these gatherings. But it was a kind of very early entrance into what we're seeing unfolding right now. Um, so went through my life, pursued a couple of degrees, um, went to do a PhD at Oxford and spent 13 years in the UK. Um, where I wrote my books and got involved in activism locally. And in 2021, I felt that um, the changes around me, both, I have to say, in the discourse around Israel, Palestine abroad, and what I was seeing at home was too vast, were too vast. And I felt that it was time to go back. And I left academia and I went to work in civil society full time in various positions. First, I went back to Peace Now, the movement that educated me and um, worked in various positions there, including the director for a bit. Um, and then um, several other organizations. And now I work in an organization called 972 that does mm -hmm. incredible work, um, local called 972 in independent journalism. And I think for me, there was a, a moment when I realized that um, I always knew that I was privileged and lucky and I defined myself as coming from the wrong side of history. I mean, I, I don't see I don't see what I'm doing as a choice. I see it as a necessity because this is where I am and this is what raised me and made me the person that I am. But I also think there was a moment when I realized that as much as I love writing and reading and I, I could have spent a long time and there are many other academic books that I could have written. Um, something pulled me back and I realized that I can't really go on and, and sort of engage things that aren't working directly on the ground. And um, whereas it's obviously been challenging and hard, um, again, I, I kind of think the challenge is not mine because I have to do it, but it, it's, it's not a fun job, to be very clear. Um, it still feels very necessary and it feels like something that I couldn't get up in the morning and sort of face the questions that I was facing without making this change. And I think, you know, we can, we can circle back to Rosa later, but I think working on radical Jewish women and writing about women who paid a very heavy price for dissenting and looking at questions of human rights and, and social justice, it felt kind of very um, fake to be doing that in a library and not what, sort of challenging apartheid on the ground when my country is enacting it. So that's a short drift about me. So you, you came back in 2021, which is already a very challenging time for someone of your politics in yes. Israeli society politically. Um, but that was before two, over two years before mm -hmm. um, 7th of October. And I just think it's an important, you know, I always talk about moral clarity since this horror began, this particular round of horror, which mm -hmm. is, is absolutely correct that we shouldn't say that history began on 7th of October, the attempt to make yeah. the clock begin on 7th of October, but equally 7th of October was a trauma, a huge trauma, mm. um, and there were real atrocities committed, and that was always mm. going to have a consequence. So as much as people like myself go, well, actually, history didn't begin then, but equally, 
you know, that was a huge trauma, which has inevitably going to have a political consequence. So I'm just wondering about that, your thoughts on that and the atmosphere, just the general atmosphere now mm. for someone who, like yourself, advocates for Palestinian rights, but also makes the argument about the history which is airbrushed out of existence. Yeah. So I want to say a few things about the 7th of October and the significance, especially human rights camp. Um, and then I'll sort of talk about your questions more broadly. Um, a lot of us, and I count myself, I have family who was displaced, has been internally displaced and hasn't been home since the 7th of October. I have friends who spent days in shelters. I I know people who were kidnapped. I know people who were killed. I have a friend who both my parents were murdered. And all these people I mentioned are all kind of activists in my circles. So when you say the 7th of October, it was traumatic. It was especially traumatic for us in the peace camp and on, on the left broadly, I would say. And there's something not coincidental about it. A lot of people who went to live around Gaza, which was connects to the second part of your question, knew that this is key, that the connection between Gaza and the rest of the territory between the river and the sea is something that is crucial for any political resolution, for any kind of coexistence that has any kind of value. And indeed, a lot of the people living there we're kind of involved in various solidarity actions, whether it's, I mean, I mean my cousin used to drive um, patients from, um, the, from the checkpoint, from the, the border crossing in Gaza to hospitals in Israel and in other parts of Palestine. I think there was this kind of idea that you have to be there and you have to engage and not to let the siege, a uh, 17 year old siege, it has to be said over Gaza, go unnoticed. So for us, it was a trauma. I'm now talking as kind of my community, the human rights and peace community on a twofold level about people like these were people who I knew personally and were like me. And also there was this kind of hope that government would enable some kind of transition and, and you know, the kind of very basic things that we could do in, in the face of this human, inhuman um, and cruel siege um, would make some kind of a difference. So it took us some time to recover. I have to say, honestly, when I look back on of the timeline, it took us several weeks and also to just understand what had happened, quite a lot of time to gather information and to understand who was kidnapped, who was killed. As you know, for instance, Vivian Silva who was a huge inspiration for me personally, and it's kind of a really big figure in the peace camp here. Um, we only learned she was murdered a couple of weeks after we thought she was kidnapped. So, you know, for years, for, for weeks we went as I said, bring her home. So there was all this going on. On the other hand, and I'm going to say very frankly, all of us who chose to engage this directly, and I think, you know, it's very easy to not look at it because the Israeli media and authorities really try to silence any um, critique of apartheid, any kind of, any some kind of questions within Israeli public. Those of us who chose to engage it it, it's very hard not to see the context. And I think there's a very big distinction between understanding context and justifying or condoning. You can sort of see where things come from and you can see where desperation and anxiety and sort of long oppression, even beyond, you know, the 17 years of closure, we're talking about not even 67, we need to start looking back from 48, really. And that's, you know, one of the great trends the left in Israel is, is having to go through. Um, all of this feeds into what unfolded since the 7th of October. And I think whereas obviously we're all horrified by the Hamas actions, on the first day, I, I kind of said, 
I am petrified and I cannot imagine what Israel would now do in Gaza. Now, since Israel has disengaged, when I say disengaged, I mean removing its boots from on the ground and settlements from Gaza um, in 2005, Israel has engaged in something that is colloquially known and used very openly in media as mowing the lawn. Mowing the lawn is a seasonal attack on Gaza that is kind of there to deter Hamas or scare Gazans or kind of use some kind of perform the, the power disparities, really. And this has been normalized. You know, this, this has been done by all governments, including the so-called progressive government that was sitting before Netanyahu's government. So it's not something that is unusual. Um, and, and it's kind of, again, it's normalized within Israeli society. This happens even without anything occurring. You know, this sometimes happens without any kind of, not even a provocation. It's just the army goes, it it um, devastates houses, it makes sure that, you know, the pain is felt. And then the idea is that Hamas will know who they're dealing with. So when I saw news coming out on the 7th of October, I was kind of thinking, I have no idea which way this will go. Now, we we know that Netanyahu's, one of Netanyahu's biggest missions and has been, and sadly he has been successful in it, is to um, work against any kind of Palestinian sovereignty, against any kind of um, connection between various Palestinian communities, be it Gaza, the West Bank, and Palestinians within 1948 Israel and East Jerusalem. So this is a very opportune moment to just really go with full force and um, make sure that there will be no connection, that there will be no political consciousness, um, that Palestinians understand that they have no chance in sort of forming any kind of sovereign body. And now I'm kind of not even talking about which solution this could look like, although we can obviously chat about that also. So it felt like this was the perfect storm for him to just go and do something that we knew he had wanted to do, which is to um, create a huge amount of misery and devastation and suffering and um, ensure that there will never be an independent Palestine of any kind, not two state, not one state, not no state. So I think for me, that kind of worry together with knowing what the Israeli army is capable of and has been capable of over the years kind of made me kind of concerned from the get-go um, while of course sort of trying to figure out what's happening with my family and friends, etc. So, so uh, we've been holding all of this and sort of trying to navigate this. Um, well, also, again, remembering the 7th of October was horrific and we're still, we'll hold it for a while, but we're talking about something between ethnic cleansing and genocide that is being done in our name and with our money. So for me, it's been you know, really important to shift and sort of not deny and not, you know, take lightly the pain of the 7th of October. And especially, again, considering these are my people and it, we, we see how um, the community has been sort of affected by it, by it, but also to say we have to now focus on what is happening while the world is largely silent. I mean, firstly, just my love and solidarity. I mean, it's a huge huge trauma to go through and it's so important to talk about that and engage with that of course mm -hmm. you know we're talking as you say about the horrors of, of, of Gaza at the moment and what with of course the ICJ case and yeah. the, the incredible unbelievable horror there being unleashed but 
that doesn't erase, of course, the trauma that people like yourself felt in atrocities and war crimes, which committed on the yeah. 7th of October. And it's important that we talk about that, even if we talk about how that has been used to commit yeah. terrible, terrible atrocities in, your, in yeah. the name of, I mean, that that's the point, I suppose, how, you, you know, I mean, there, there are some Israelis who didn't go through, maybe, I mean, I know lots of Israelis did know someone who, who were killed mm. or kidnapped, but, you know, for them, there is, you know, there is an Israeli society um, yeah. at the moment, yeah. You know what makes you so courageous is, and this, you know, this has happened many times in lots of different societies. Nothing specific to to, to what's happened to Israel, and um, which is, you know, I mean, the polling is is pretty bleak, and um, more, more Israelis than not think not enough firepower is being used in Gaza. Yeah. That kind of thing. yeah. I mean, what's your sense then about, you know, how it's possible for a message like yours to be heard in that context, mm -hmm. and and what the atmosphere has been like? I mean, in terms of. The way mm. the state has not just used that horror, obviously, uh, against the people of Gaza, but also to suppress voices for peace within Israel. So, first of all, we need to sort of make a distinction between Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinians broadly, but Palestinians and Israelis, because again, under apartheid, I am still, I'm always one of the lucky ones, kind of lucky, I say, in, in Skyfords, but like we. Uh, deal with various things that I'll talk about, but there has been a very heavy-handed and cruel persecution of Palestinians who dared to show any kind of solidarity with Gaza, so or even just kind of any kind of engagement. So um, a doctor was fired for blocking a Jewish colleague. A Palestinian doctor was fired after she blocked a Jewish colleague on, on Facebook. Various students were expelled from universities if they liked posts that had a Palestinian flag in them. Um, there's been huge amount of silencing and persecution against Palestinian, Palestinians under the kind of guise of, of this attack. So, so this has been going on in full force um, since the 7th and really early on before there was anything that we could kind of discuss in a substantial way and we can sort of say where things were actually going. Um, the Jewish side is always small. You know, I'm part of a small community. I, I, as you say, the polling is never good for us. Um, but I think for us, it, it's been harder and harder to dissent. And I mean, just as we speak now, there have been two um, demonstrations cancelled this weekend, both anti-war, one, and both cancelled by the police, I should say, one actually under the heading, only peace will bring security. That has been, been deemed too dangerous for the police to secure, which you know shows you how low we've sunk really in terms of allowing any kind of dissent. Um, so what I feel is that the there has been kind of a very concentrated attempt to silence and to sort of not allow us any kind of space to, to not even grieve. You know, a lot of these gatherings and demonstrations are just to see the community and sort of in the first few weeks, it was really to see my comrades and talk about, have you heard from such and such? And have you heard anything? Because you also don't want to, like, it's, it's this very awkward situation. Do you text the person whose parents were kidnapped and ask them what, what is happening? No, it's easier to go to a demonstration and, and chat with your comrades. So it felt like really kind of clap, clamping down on some on the space that was really important to us. But yeah, I mean, we continue. I, I'm pretty sure there'll be demonstrations tomorrow. Um, there have been every Saturday since the very beginning of the war. There were a few that were authorized by the police, but there are a few where we just go out to a specific place and it's pretty undercover and we just protest. Um, again, I think for us, 
we're we're always not as much targeted as our Palestinian comrades. I think there's also this duty of if I go out, the worst I can get is to you know get into some brawl with a police person or whatever. Fine. Um, I will probably not lose my job and I will probably not have to face a lot of um, sort of personal attacks that my Palestinian comrades are facing. So I think there's that kind of element within our community that is very much felt right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, talking about peace during a war is really, really hard, but it's also, I think, the most urgent message at the moment. So, you know, you mentioned the ICJ case. We're talking on the day in which Israel has aired his he its hearing. I have to say, I didn't listen. I was kind of like, I wasn't able to bear it. Instead, I read um, Hannah Arendt on civil disobedience. I felt that was a better way forward um, with my day. But I think we're at a crossroads where we need to decide whether we're supporting international law and human rights as painful as it might be, you know, for a Jewish woman to hear accusations of genocide is a very difficult thing to face. It's, you know, all our families came from similar sort of backgrounds, but it actually makes it more important for us to face and to sort of really hold on to international law and to um, face the evidence that has been incredibly hard to hear. And I did listen to the entire South African submission and to look at the evidence as we see it. And I mean, Haaretz, which is Israel's newspaper published, it's like its cover story on its um, weekend read um, around the famine in Gaza. So we can talk about the bombings, we can talk about the, the sort of army attacks. We can also talk about the fact that close to a quarter of a million people are hungry. And this is an hour drive for me. And this is done again in my name. So we need to sort of face up to all of that and hold on to international law and human rights and peace when when everyone wants us to distract from that and to talk about revenge and to talk about sort of righteous anger. This is really the moment when we need to hold on to these universalistic values that sort of sit in the basis of what I see as justice. I mean, on that one part, part of that, I guess, within this atmosphere is the mm. question of the Israeli settle, settler movement. Um, yeah. We all thought it was already the deadliest um, year in the West Bank yeah. before the 7th of October. Around 240 yeah. Palestinians died this year before mm. October 7th, uh, dozens of them children. Um, and we've seen a massive increase in that horrendous violence, ethnic cleansing basically yeah. going on, also just settler attacks. Yeah. Um, mass incarceration, including of well, children. children. Yeah. So what, what and there's also, you know, that I mean, I mean, just in terms of Gaza, because, again, you know, the, the, the not danger, but it's just in terms of how accurate we talk about things here, because it's easy for us just see every extreme possible sentiment being expressed and then think that's obviously what's going to happen. That's not necessarily the case, of course. And yeah. within his, even within Israeli society, even, you know, would would there actually be a huge appetite to resettle Gaza, that kind of thing? But there are calls for it. So I'm just wondering yeah. what you think about those kind of, you know, the, yeah. the question of the colonisation, the illegal mm. West Bank, their expansion, um, and those calls mm. for Gaza combined with calls for ethnic cleansing, yeah. which are obviously rampant. Yeah, yeah. So um, the West Bank and Gaza have been separated intentionally by the Israeli government through what it, it says openly is the, the separation policy and sort of, again, sort of sometimes it's even, you know, cutting families from each other, um, communities, etc. 
And part of the way that Israel has suppressed Palestinian resistance is to um, oppress different communities in different ways. So if you look at how apartheid sustains itself, it's, you know, you silence Palestinians within Israel in that way, and you attack Palestinians in the West Bank in that way, and then you attack them in Gaza in a different way. And then it's harder to garner solidarity and to have some kind of resistance to those policies. Now, what has been happening in the West Bank, and I should say when I was director of peace now in, in my years in the movement, uh, that, that was kind of my bread and butter and monitoring settlement expansion and sort of looking at the colonization um, on the ground. We've been talking about annexation for years. So when Trump was in power, um, there was the, the peace plan, which was basically an annexation plan. And it was a very big campaign um, across the board in Israeli progressive circles against annexation. And since then, we've been using the term um, sort of creeping annexation, although I would say in my observation, especially in the last, I'll talk more frankly about the last three years, because that's when I was more involved. Um, you can't talk about anything that is not annexation in full force, because the amount of land grabs and sort of um, illegal settlement expansion and also legal. So, you know, obviously all settlements are illegal by international law. And yet Israel has found a way to sort of legalize um, certain settlement um, processes. Still, the, the data is really astounding. Now, talking about settler violence and settlements, I think it's really important to understand that settler violence and settlements and the military force enacted in the West Bank all happen together. And it's not like, you know, the Israeli government, not so much this one, but previous ones, like to say, oh, there are a few bad apples, there's these kind of fanatic um, settlers, they do their thing, it's hard to control them. Sometimes they'll arrest one or two and have a performance, usually not even that. But in effect, what we see on the ground more and more, and there's some great organizations such as the Ashdin and Betselem, we've been monitoring this for years, is that very often you will see settler violence and you'll see uh, sort of the army either standing aside or sometimes even joining. So Palestinians have kind of zero protection and up against two forces at the same time. And the important element about that is to say that settle, settler violence is another way to colonize. It's another way to scare people off their land. It's another way to scare people off um, their agricultural land. Um, when the war, when the attacks broke out, broke out, we were in the beginning of harvest season. Now, harvests have become so difficult and so dangerous for Palestinians that they weren't even able, able to access their lands. And what certain Israelis have been doing, including myself and comrades is just to go there as protective measure and just to stand there and sometimes settlers will attack less if they see a Jewish person um, standing or you know being kind, kind of a human shield um, but even that was impossible so the escalation of settler violence has to be read together with escalation of colonization and of military violence now what we are also hearing now is that with a large part of the military transferred into the West Bank we see more and more kind of unhinged um, settlers putting on uniforms and acting as militias. So for years, we've been seeing this kind of joining forces of the military and of the settler movement and sort of gaining more and more force on the ground and leaving Palestinians zero ability to protect themselves. Because what do you do if you have like an army that is funded by some of the richest countries in the world, together with settlers who want to steal their, your land, and that's your day to day life. Um, since the 7th of October, 16 communities have been displaced in the West Bank. And I think it's important to see this again as the counter image of what's happening in Gaza. And the intent is the same. The intent is to stop 
any kind of possibility of Palestinian sovereignty, any kind of connection to the land, to displace people, to reenact trauma. Um, but the tactic is different. So whereas I think it's really important, all eyes are on Gaza for very obvious reasons, but what's happening in the West Bank is alarming in different ways and has to be monitored. And again, I kind of, there's there's a lot of work being done really on the ground just to sort of literally count outposts and to see, to sort of monitor settler violence, to see what the effects are on day-to-day -day life there. And I think it's really important to just sort of keep an eye and, you know, again, if we believe in international law and justice, one day all these things will be brought just as much as we saw um, the evidence being brought around Gaza. So my hope is that one day all these protocols will be brought and sort of used for persecution as well. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Before I ask my final question, just in terms mm. of what happens next, and you know, it, it's interesting because I, I spoke to Gideon Levy, who's a brilliant journalist, very courageous journalist, mm. yeah, quite a pessimistic guy, um, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, and his view, things have just got to the point where it will do, nothing will change without external pressure, and therefore, what you know, looking at the United States, which obviously the US, mm. the way Israel behaves, is so dependent on the US, a younger generation is shifting their attitudes, not least. Younger, a younger generation of Jewish Americans, I would say, which is mm. quite exciting. Um, what do you think? I mean, is it just? Do you, I mean, that that would be quite a pessimistic case for mm. your movement um, at the moment. Um, and you know, also on that, what we can do outside to help, because I think you know, one of the things yeah. that's always for me very striking when I speak to Jewish comrades in Britain, let alone in Israel, is you've got sometimes felt this nightmare, so nightmare, where you, on the one hand, you have apologists for the um, these the apartheid and so on, uh, calling you a self-hating Jew, and then you have mm. others on the left who yeah. don't take anti-Semitism seriously. Mm. Um, so I'm just wondering what we. So I guess there's two points: can the Israeli peace movement mm. build itself from what is a very marginal position at the moment, very very weak position? How is that yeah. possible? And how can how can we help from abroad? I think um, things are really really bad. Um, actually horrific to be more accurate. Um, I wouldn't be advocating for this if I didn't believe that at some point, and I don't know if my in my lifetime, I hope it happens sooner rather than later because the cost in human life is one that we cannot bear. Um, you know, dwindling on this and sort of letting things slide. We're talking about um, tens of thousands of people being killed 
um, in just over three months, which is not, I, I don't think, you know, a, someone who comes from our tradition as a Jewish person, um, who knows, you know, when, when you look around, when you see the evidence, when you sort of hear reporting, we know what this means. We, I, I'm not a legal scholar, but when I see evidence from Gaza, it, it, it's pretty genocidal, you know, it's, it's hard to avoid that. So I think for me and for people around me, we have to keep advocating because that's our only choice and we can't despair. We don't have the privilege to despair. Um, I think it's really important to be focused on what we're advocating for. And again, to sort of hold on to those things that actually, you know, in an interesting way, um, the Genocide Convention and the State of Israel are all kind of children of the Second World War. And um, we're talking about a moment where the world recognized that we need some kind of um, a bar that we need to judge actions according to. So for me, holding on to that and keeping the advocacy focused on that and talking about solutions and talking about um, what we need to think about when um, we talk about solutions. If I may share a small story from my own life that is kind of relevant to that. Um, so in 2022, I was the director of Peace Now, and I went to demonstrate in Sheikh Jarrah, where uh, there's expediated ethnic cleansing going on, has been for years by settlers displacing Palestinians. And um, on that day, an attack on Gaza started. When we were there, we were standing with Palestinian families in, in risk of being displaced from their homes, and suddenly we, we heard the news that an attack on Gaza started. And I was standing next to my friend and comrade, um, Oli Noy, who's the chair of B'Tselem, a very, very courageous and inspirational woman to me. And um, suddenly we heard that the four-year-old girl was killed by Israeli bombings. A right-wing journalist comes up to us and says, aren't you ashamed to stand here with Palestinian flags and with these people and sort of, you know, gestures at the Palestinians we're standing with when your army is fighting? And Oli said on the record, um, I'm ashamed to, of what my army is doing. And I just felt this kind of crystallized where we are right now in terms of resistance. And also in a way, it's also connecting me to sort of thinking about solutions and what we're advocating for, because Gaza is so important for, and has been for Palestinian resistance because it harks back to 1948. And it harks back to um, talking about the Nakba opening, which is really hard for Israelis but is necessary and talking about how all of us palestinians and israelis can somehow find a way to live here because none of us are going anywhere i think that's the kind of crucial thing to say we need to stop the violence we need to stop um the genocide there are two peoples here we need to figure out a way to live together um so i think that moment for me and sort of just hearing Oli say that and then just having that also this very strong feeling like when a four-year-old girl was killed in your name, there's only one thing that you can say. And that is kind of thinking about the grander sort of cause we're motivating, uh, we're advocating for, and that motivates us really. Um, I should say in, in parenthesis, and this is where the story also takes a, a turn towards talking about solutions, that when I got home that evening, I was really, really upset, obviously. Um, we didn't even know if we would get back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, where I'm based. Um, I got a phone call from one of my board members at Peace Now who told me off for being this sort of being disrespectful to the army and you can't talk about the army during a war. So I think when we look at the outlook for the peace movement, we need to really support and um, encourage those of us who are willing to sort of 
speak up and to also realize that the silencing here again it's it's much much harder against palestinians but even against us and i was kind of very small party to that but i still felt like you know of all the things you can tell me of that day that board member found it right to just say why are you talking about gaza and why are you talking about the army you shouldn't you shouldn't engage with that like you you do as you're told kind of thing so for me that was a really sort of turning point where i realized that i cannot but think and talk about really foundational principles of justice and what brought us here and as you said nothing started the 7th of october things started way way before you can start 48 you can start at 29 you can start even you know 1882 but we need to sort of really think about the context and again this doesn't mean that i'm a self-hating jew this is my home i came back here volitionally this is my community i don't see myself ever living anywhere else but i also realized that i need to um find a just way to live with people around me so um that's kind of something around um the peace movement and where we're heading and why I, I i don't feel i have the privilege not to be an optimist because i don't think it's for me to to sort of give up on hope it's for other people maybe i think it's a beautiful way of putting it um just finally it would be a miss mm. not for yeah. me to, to ask given you the your biographer of rosa luxembourg mm. For those who don't know much about Rosa Luxemburg, she was a Polish-German Jewish revolutionary. Um, and when World War One began, much of the European left just lined up behind their governments as their yeah. governments sent huge numbers of working-class men to their deaths in a orgy of mass slaughter, mm. which then defined essentially everything that's happened since, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and she stood against that war, of course, very courageously. Yeah. Um, and again, for those who don't know, she was murdered exactly almost now, 115, uh, oh, is that right? 105, sorry, 105 yeah. years ago, along with Karl Liebknecht, another mm. uh, leading revolutionary at the time, killed by the Freikorps, far-right paramilitary mm. organizations hired by the German Social Democrats to wipe out the revolutionary left. I'm just wondering, what would she, she's, she's interesting, I'm fascinated by her, because she had quite an interesting view of national um, self-determination, which I'm not quite sure mm. what she but what what's your what can we learn just quickly i suppose from rosa what can, what can we learn from rosa um first of all i should say that writing a biography is something that kind of immerses you in the life of, of a person and sh she kind of becomes part of you and then she kind of carries on with you whether you like it or not um i think when i was writing the book it took me about five years all in all um i was really kind of overwhelmed by it, it wasn't even courage. She just like, she couldn't do anything differently. And sometimes in, when you're kind of in this intimate relationship, you're kind of like, don't do that. That's a really bad idea. Like, don't write that pamphlet. That will not work well. And then she wrote the pamphlet and like, you know, without fail, it did not go well. Um, so, I, but there was something really non-compromising about her. And I think there was her gut, her gut instincts are very strong and whether she was right or wrong, she followed them. And very often she was right, especially on, the, on questions of morality and politics. And I think, it's very easy to conflate law and morality and politics, but they're very often distinct. And on morality, I think she, she really did kind of work on her gut instinct and, and she was right. And I mean, what would she have made of the situation right now? First of all, I, sh I should say that there's a great um, fund, the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, that is doing that kind of work of bringing her legacy on and that kind of um, try to, to make a question and a kind of engage with them in, in thinking about that together. I think 
one thing that really stays with me and has been has kind of stayed with me since the seventh is an emphasis on humanity and on um kind of non-compromising humanity and i mean one of her most famous letters um that she wrote um in prison she was actually in prison for anti-war campaigning she talks about um buffaloes carrying um blood soaked um shirts coming from from the battle and how she feels so horribly for the buffaloes and that kind of all the the wrong of the war is crystallized in that moment and i think there's something also when she writes about the war she's angry at the war she's angry at leaders who enact the war but there's this kind of feeling that everyone loses in wars and you know i've been going out most weeks since every week since the protest started actually and I've always kind of written online, no one wins in wars. I think there's this really important sense of like violence just begets more violence and um, revenge begets more revenge, etc. And especially kind of power dynamics. And she, she was then operating in Germany, which was by far the strongest in the uh, international left, sorry, Britain. Um, but she kind of said, we're doing, like, we're, we're on the wrong side of history. That was like a very strong sense her analysis of colonialism and imperialism in relationship to the war was kind of really kind of she was the first person to write about Morocco versus Germany in that context. So I think all of these subtleties, but together and holding on to this humanity and this other letter that she writes and she says, see that you stay human. And I think for me, that was a calling that you cannot look at what's happening in Gaza. You cannot look at it and be silent and still be human. You will lose your humanity. I am not a self-hating Jew. I'm not even a self-hating Israeli. I am who I am. I was born into this situation. And I believe oppression basically makes all of us lesser people. We're all less humans if we're party to oppression. Anyone who is now silent on Gaza, anyone, and this is also goes back to another question you asked, anyone who is silent and not amplifying dissent and not talking about what's happening in Gaza is losing in their humanity. And we all we will all lose as as a world. This is not to say that the prices are the same. You know, the Palestinians in Gaza who are under genocidal attack and are starving and are suffering diseases. I can't even say it, you know, it's happening an hour for me and it's just kind of hard to stomach that this is actually happening. They deserve our solidarity as human beings. I think we, we don't need to go into the whole pro-Palestinian, pro-Israeli, pro-anti-Palestinian, anti-Israeli. We need to be pro-human and we need to speak up for humanity, for justice, for international law and for peace. So I think for me, Rosa is kind of always a reminder that I can do better as a human being because she always kind of pushed her friends and she was a really extraordinary human being. Um, and to, to try and remain human and it's, it's very hard right now to remain human. There's so much going that um, between, again, the effects of the seventh and, and holding that grief and then sort of just being party to all of this and seeing all of that unfold. But having that benchmark, I think, is something that we can definitely learn from her. Amen. And I think you're right. It's a war on humanity in two ways, isn't it? It's a war on human beings, mm -hmm. but it's a war yeah. on, on our sense of humanity. And we have to fight that, yeah. everything that we've yeah. got. Um, Daniel, that was such an honour, honestly. You spoke so beautifully. And again, you spoke with huge humanity. I think Rosa Luxemburg would be very proud. Um, but you, know, you, you do give us hope. And however marginalised you may be now, I know, I mean, I often say, you know, when we say history will be on the side, history will vindicate, you know, I know that sometimes feels overly optimistic and simplistic. 
but it seems the horror is so absolute that how can it not? Mm. And the road ahead for the hu for the human species is 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 completely bleak. How mm. can it not be that voices like your own will not end up vindicated? And if they're not, we're doomed anyway. So on that note, um, it was a huge honor. Uh, please do share this video, press like and subscribe. But down there, thank you so so much. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.